Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In the spirit of ANU's motto, which is first to know the nature of things, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and waterways which were never ceded. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend our respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples listening today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. I'm here to make a public statement. Look, I'm going to uh, shirt from Mr. Putin. I am a fighter and not a fighter. I don't think I know it. I want to thank uh, that fellow down under. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. G'day there, Mark Kenny here with another Democracy Sausage, which comes to you each week from the Australian National University. I'm with the Australian Studies Institute at ANU and also the School of Politics and International Relations, where my colleague Dr. Maria Tafaga is also uh, employed as a senior lecturer. She's a political scientist and institutionalist, uh, and she's with me now after a little bit of a break, Maria. You've been away. Yes, I've been away. I, I've gone to um, some academic conferences overseas and, uh, you know, shared ideas and exchanged knowledge. It was all very stimulating. That's good. As long as you didn't exchange any viruses or whatever, I, I understand you were feeling not so great when you came back. Uh, well, I didn't. I don't think I gave anyone COVID apart from my <laughs> poor, unfortunate husband. But I certainly acquired it on the on the way back. Yeah, it's a it's a, a sort of a an occupational hazard or a, or a hazard that we all have to face at the moment. So, uh, if you're thinking of travelling, or even if you're not, get vaccinated. That's what I say. Um, it may help. It will help at least in some degree. So. With us also today is uh, what I think is a, a for a you know definitional moment that this country faces at the moment is Professor Julianne Schultz. She's the author of, among other works, The Idea of Australia, A Search for the Soul of the Nation, which came out quite recently. It's published by Alan and Unwin. And let me just tell you, it is brilliant. It's uh, been described by some as a, uh, as a modern day version of the lucky country, Donald Horne's lucky country. And I think that's uh, a good way of describing it. It's certainly thought provoking. Julianne Schultz, Schultz is a, an emeritus professor of media and culture at Griffith University. She's Chair of the Conversation, she's been a board member at the ABC, a founding editor of the Griffith Griffith Review, and uh, done many, many other things as well. She's a columnist with The Guardian and in other places. Julianne, welcome to Democracy Sausage. Thank you so much for having me, Mark. Uh, It's a great pleasure. Um, I wonder if we could start. I've been uh, reading your book and and, and reading your articles and uh, find them just so rich and rewarding. just going to the book, uh, The Idea of Australia, mm. because we're at this moment in this country, I thought it might be a good way of going into this conversation just to talk about an idea that you canvas early in the book, uh, this idea of a terra nullius of the mind. I wonder if you could mm. sort of explain what that means. Mm. Well, thanks, Mark. Um yeah, look, I mean, we're all very familiar with the notion of terra nullius as it applied when the British decided to claim all the land as their own and imagined that there were no prior owners. 
and you know that's now been redressed by by the courts and you know took a long time but it eventually did, yeah. got there but it struck me that that in a way what it's accompanied by is what i describe as a terra nullius of the mind that in a way that everyone you know people arrive and there's they see a blank slate they see the the horizon disappearing beyond them and imagining a future and that's something that's happened you know over the whole period of of settlement and if you take that as a sort of a starting point, that it's it's always a blank slate and you're always projecting onto it, um, it's very easy not just to forget but not to pay attention that, to what went before um, and to how the tendrils of what was there before, you know, recent and ancient, play out in terms of how, how the place operates now. I It's sort of, I mean, in a way, first became clear to me when I was, in various corporate jobs and there'd be lots, we'd recruit lots of international people to these sort of cultural university media type positions. And they were brilliant, brilliant people that we we were routinely recruiting. And almost invariably, they would say at some point, oh, I just, I can imagine what I'm going to do here. I'm just going to impose, you know, I can see how this could happen and this is what I want to do. And it was as though there was no no attempt by many of them to actually try and dig down into what was here before. They saw a blank slate in, into which their brilliance was going to be imposed. Um, and as they went on, they realised, actually, there's something here. I can't quite get my head around it. I've, I've got to try and figure it out. How do I figure it out? And some of some of these people um, in the end decided it was too hard, you know, that it was just too hard. It was too difficult to get a, a grasp on the sort of the culture and history of the place I'm better off going back to where I came from, which was the experience of other, some, and others just ploughed on. Some become very curious. I mean, indeed, some of the people who you know who, who arrive here become very curious about trying to make sense of it in a way that those of us who've been here for generations often aren't. Um, so I think that was the sort of starting point, mm. and then I realised actually it plays out in all sorts of other ways. Yeah, it's a really interesting point. This idea of it being too hard because that that regrettably sort of describes the whole national experience of modern Australia that it's been too hard, and it's best left back in the past and and not discussed, not interrogated. Yeah, well, I don't. I mean, I actually don't think it's too hard, but I think that we've not been given incentives to do to do anything much um, that really enables that sort of interrogation. And when it gets close to home and touches on really difficult things, the the instinct in this society is to actually shut it down, go away, pretend it's not happening. Um, I mean, I was struck, for instance, the other day with um, with um, the Shadow Attorney General, Shadow Indigenous Affairs um, Minister's um, address to the press club and when she talked about colonisation not having, you know, not having a negative consequence. And, you know, we know that that's not true. But I guess in many ways when you talk about the sort of nation, that, that the negative consequences of colonisation weren't redressed at federation. And that's the crucial, that's the crucial bit in my, to my mind, that, you know, you can, you can mark separations between the outright colonisation process but once we own it as a nation, come federation, that's when we've really got to own it and we haven't. Well, I mean, I think actually what's important about federation, right, that you just mentioned is that that, that actually the whole process of, of federating coincided with the process of, of national forgetting. And that was actually a big part of the sort of discourse and the rhetorical structure of, of the federation debates because one of the arguments made for federation was that, you know, here was this sort of land that had been sort of hidden by God and 
had been like waiting to be revealed until the white man had evolved to like an appropriate <laughs> level to find it, discover mm-hmm. it, and to effectively colonize it and take it bloodlessly, unlike the horrible French or those Americans. And so the discourse around Indigenous dispossession, which is actually very evident in the public record, if you look at newspapers from the time, was effectively brushed out of the picture in order to make that image of this golden uh, you know, nation being birthed uh, possible. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah, I, look, I agree with you, Maria. I think that's absolutely what happened. But, but the disconnect was was you know it wasn't um, it wasn't possible in many ways. I mean, you know, right up until Federation, the newspapers, as you say, were full of reports of massacres, killings, and other assaults. You know, this was something that was absolutely part of the sort of public discourse. So it took it took more than just a little bit of wishing it away to make it. Um, to make it disappear, and but it was an extraordinarily successful thing. I mean, I, the example that I that I like to use in a way was that on the second day after the um, after the um, the celebrations of Federation in, in Centennial um, Park, and then in the Sydney Town Hall, you know, they have an event which is meant to do a reenactment of the of the landing of, of Philip, and they had to bring down Aboriginal people from Queensland to act out as the sort of Indigenous who were being, you know, displaced. And when the New Zealand uh, High Commissioner said he thought this was inappropriate and that this was not something that should be um, should be a matter of celebration, that hopefully Australia at some point, like New Zealand, would come to some sort of settlement with its First Peoples, the, the press the next day went completely berserk that this man was speaking out of order, how dare he say this. So it's not just a sort of... To forget is a bit like, as I say in the book... It, it's not just something that happens passively. It's an active forgetting, um, as was an active making things silent. Yeah, it's an interesting uh, debate. This one, though, because um, you know Megan Davis makes the point. One of the uh, architects of the Uluru statement, the first per- person to read out the statement when it was finalised, uh, makes the point that the historical record does have a lot of evidence in it, uh, and that it's it's you know the great Australian silence that uh, W. E. H. Stanner talked about in his sixty eight Boyer lectures is often relied. I think she thinks that it's relied on a bit too literally, a bit too um, a bit too forcefully, and that uh, people could have interrogated a lot of this documentary evidence a lot more. Of course. Uh, however, I think what Stanner was really talking about, and Anna Clark deals with this in her book Making Australian History, was the um the way in which the official record just sort of didn't take into account a number of things contemporaneously i mean there were those media reports as you say early on uh, but there was a um an absence of written material about a number of different atrocities that occurred and there was a there was a a, a deliberate attempt at kind of um, selling the empire story through our, edu- our education system. So a whole generation of people, and we can see this reflected in the in the polls as we approach this, um, this referendum, a whole generation or several generations of Australians were taught a version of Australian history which became accepted wisdom or definitional in their minds, which was mm-hmm. um, about 
explorer conquests. I mean, they knew about Burke and Wills and Sturt and these various people, Matthew Flinders, but they would hear very little. They would hear nothing, in fact, about uh, the frontier wars, about massacres, about the systematized uh, racism and abuse and rape and murder and dispossession and all those oh, and the things. the missions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the missions. All of that stuff was sort of left out. And I think what we've actually learned about, or what we're learning uh, rather sadly about human psychology is that People don't like to have their understanding of the world upset by subsequent information that just effectively overturns yeah. what has been their understanding of the world. Yeah. Look, I'm sure there's elements of that. I'm no doubt. Um, I mean, I think it's quite – I think there is what I, – I like Bernard Smith's line, the white blanket of forgetfulness, yes. you know, that it's actually something that is – you know, let's put – we'll snuggle into our white blanket and, and just and forget. Um, look, I think um, – I don't think that there's any way that you can say that people weren't aware of what was going on. I mean, the whole sort of protection movement was in such strong, um, such strong flow at the time of federation. I mean, you know that that had become a deliberate sort of strategy. It's also not true that there's not records. You know, the colonial records, are, you know, are, are enormously expansive. There's a lot of documentation of this stuff. You know. Um, it, it's it's a sort of exercise in human psychology. The thing I find most perplexing, in a way. Is that is the failure to own it? Is the failure to own what was being done um, because it was known? So why couldn't it be owned and faced up to? Um, I mean, you look at the sort of theoretical stuff around nation formation, and essentially, you know, in 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 a contemporary, you know, like over the last couple of centuries, it's, at some level there is some sense sense of blood sacrifice. That occurs to create a nation. There is a war. There is a battle. There's a civil war. Whatever it is, there's some. There is a blood sacrifice that's involved, and in an Australian sense, that blood sacrifice had more than amply occurred. And when that occurs, you then either the victors move on. There may be some sort of um, approach to you know come to some sort of you know settlement with with the, with the vanquished. Um, that blood sa- that sacrifice had occurred, but rather than owning it, it was tucked away and. Which goes to, to my sense that part of what you're saying, Mark, about people not knowing—that's part of it. But I really do think that for for many people who have been on this continent for generations, there is an embodied knowledge which may never have been articulated fully, never really interrogated, but with which carries with it a certain sense of shame that yes, something yes. something bad has happened. We can't quite put our finger on it, but hey, do you remember great auntie so and so talking about somebody going? You know, there's a sort of there's a there's a collective um, a collective memory, and when you scratch at a bit of shame like that, this is what you get the sort of outpouring that we're seeing now. Now to interrogate and to actually deal with shame at a sort of collective national level, it requires a very different sort of mechanism than what we are normally accustomed to in the public debate. I mean, we saw a little bit of it in the in the Brittany Higgins Grace Tame year, you know, when the shame of being sexually assaulted was moved from the victims to the perpetrators. Um, but that hasn't actually worked out all that well over the last little while. It sort of, you know, it was a, there was a brief frame of it. So how you interrogate a sort of disembodied sense of national shame to actually come to some sort of other solution if you can't even talk about the historical record in any sort of robust way i you know it's it's 
push it away, white blanket of forgetfulness. Yeah, yeah. I, I think you're absolutely right. And 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 you write in your book about Jeremy Bentham, going right back to I think 1803. So we're talking what 220 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, who talked about what was it an incurable flaw? I think incurable flaw was his line. Yeah. yeah, and this just explain what that what you were saying there. Yeah, so well, Bentham. I mean, it was a throwaway line by Bentham. I mean, Bentham was no supporter of you know of Aboriginal people, you know, at all. You know, he was he was writing. He wrote a very long essay in eighteen oh three about arguing that the col- that the colony of New South Wales had been illegally established. Um, and going through the sort of legal arguments about why it hadn't been done in a way which was, you know, legally sound. And he used just in, the, you know, sort of relatively early on in this essay the fact that Ben Alon, um had, had gone to the UK as as Governor Phillip's um, um, guest, essentially, and Philip had kitted him out with, you know, all the right gear for getting to meet the king, you know, the right sort of spats and the right hat, and the, you know, like the whole mm. sort of old boxing cadoodle. And um, the king had no interest in seeing him. So, you know, he was there with his colleague for a number of years and eventually came back, you know, having not had any sort of formal meetings. And and even the sort of curiosity of the exotic had by that stage sort of petered out. You know, there'd been a sort of, in the earlier, in the, in the 1700s, there'd been more curiosity about the exotic. And so it was a sort of completely unsatisfactory sort of um, failed encounter. And and Bentham in his in his essay just says, oh, this is will be an incurable flaw. You know, it was one of a number of incurable flaws he thought were going to attach to the colony of New South Wales. And I just use it in the book because I thought it was a sort of quite good sort of rhetorical device, you know, to actually then trace through the various attempts to reach a settlement, make, make conclusions, come to an agreement, um, you know, all the entreaties and then the sort of the active, you know, attempts to really um, change the society and how time and time and time again through bureaucratic process and other methods it would be rebuffed. Um, So it just sort of seemed to make the point that maybe Bentham was onto something and maybe it was incurable. Yes, it was sort of prescient, uh, that, uh, that, that that comment, because it didn't necessarily, as you say, arise from any great progressive position uh, of taking the side of uh, First Nations peoples, but, but just understanding that if you, if you construct uh, a political settlement without actually dealing with some key aspect of it, then it's going to have this weakness built into it. We're going to take a break now, but I think when we come back, we'll, we'll talk about the extent to which going off Bentham's words, uh, it is curable. That is, to the extent that um, the First Nations people have provided a way forward. Uh, It doesn't undo history, but it does unlock the future. And the question of whether this country has the, the courage and the resolve to actually take that step. Back in a moment. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. When the wind veered, the smoke was driven backwards, revealing a most amazing scene. Standing columns of fire. To Be Continued is a new podcast that explores the rich world of lost literary fiction from Australia's past. 
It helps you to understand the way in which knowledge is kind of not something that's out there waiting to be discovered, but it's something that you create. To Be Continued is brought to you by the Australian National University and is available now on your favourite podcast app. Welcome back to Democracy Sausage uh, with ANU, Mark Kenny, and with Julianne Schultz, Professor Julianne Schultz, and Dr. Maria Tafaga. Uh, Julianne, we were talking just before about the incurable flaw built into Australia. We have now this gesture, the Uluru Statement from the Heart. It is the beginning of a process. It invites the nation to start a new chapter, to start a new dialogue and to um, and to move forward. And yet we see it enmeshed now in, in some pretty brutal domestic politics. Uh, and we see a, a rapid change uh, in Australia's support for it, at least judging by opinion polls. Last year it was uh, support for the Uluru Statement and the, the, the idea of a voice was sitting at around 60% or a bit over 60%, I think. Now the polls suggest that it's uh, well below that, well below 50% uh, according to what we understand. So there's been a real erosion of that. I wonder if I get you to reflect on how you've seen this. You've written recently about what you hoped to see. You thought maybe the, as we had in the pandemic, we all became sort of you know closet or armchair epidemiologists and mm. and became knowledgeable about J, uh, flattening the curve, not J-curve, we'll come to that, um, <laughs> uh, flattening the curve um, and uh, and these sorts of things. We, we seem to understand and take a great deal of interest in it. There hasn't been the same level of um, mm. popular engagement either with the Constitution uh, which I've complained about in the past, and I think you've complained about, is tends to be sort of framed in a lot of people's minds in terms of the U.S. Constitution rather than our own, and uh, or with or with history as we've just been discussing. Mm-hmm. So, you know, how have you mm-hmm. seen the, the the sort of the decline of this popular support and uh, the 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 rather shallow nature of the public engagement with these issues? Yeah, look, it's it's been very striking, um, and. Uh, at one level, a little perplexing, but then I guess not so much. I mean, the I, I, as I wrote in the Guardian last week, the, it, it did strike me. I, I was thinking last year when History is Calling was adopted as one of the sort of slogans for the for the year that this would be an opportunity to really interrogate the nation's history. Um, one of the products or the consequences of the Howard history wars during the 1990s when it was very ugly and people were being really pilloried for doing sort of serious historical research that didn't suit a certain political agenda. One of the consequences of that was that a lot of historians felt very much under attack quite recently because they were, um, but they went back into into the archives. They went back to do the research. Um, they went back to to really doing sort of some, some very serious and substantial work that hadn't, you know, some of it had been, no, that hadn't been done before. And so what we've seen over the last two decades has been an extraordinary flowering of really impressive historical research that hadn't previously been done. That's We know much more than we've ever known before and there's much more to, to know. And I guess last year when I was still um, chairing the conversation, I led a number of conversation, you know, discussions there about, for instance, what the editorial line should be and how we, you know, approach it. And, and one of the key things that I was pushing was to try and get some of this historical work out into the public domain because, you know, a lot of it is, 
some of it reaches into a public space, but much of it is within the profession and within the journals and within the sort of more rarefied discussion. And so the conversation did that sort of early on. They commissioned a whole lot of pieces and much of it was very good. And I honestly had thought that with some of that material and other material that was around, that you would see the talk shows really picking up on these discussions and really, you know, that the drum every week would have at least one or two historians, that the historians will be popping up in the in the other talkback shows, that the, the people who are comfortable doing that more popular stuff would be there on the project, you know, that that sort of discussion would be part of a sort of general mainstream discussion because there's the talent's there. It's not as though they can't, they can't do it. Um, and that didn't happen. And I think the reason was pretty obvious that it was a sort of as soon as it became a partisan exercise, yeah, yeah. as soon as Dutton decided that it was, you know, he would not support it. But even before that, when Little Proud had said the Nationals wouldn't support it, all of a sudden the metrics had to change and it became a measurable uh, one or the other, you know, the ABC, for instance, you know, is measuring minutes and seconds and who's speaking this and what did they say. And it seems to me that that you can have a yes and a no, but there is still an overarching conversation and an information base that needs to be made available, which actually doesn't fall into the partisan rubric. Doesn't You don't actually have to be on one side or the other to be talking the history. The history is itself and is grounded in the research and the fact of what occurred. But somehow or other that historical stuff got pulled back into the political discussion and got counted in much the same way. So, I mean, if you look, for instance, at SBS On Demand, I mean, they've got a wonderful archive and I really think they've done an extraordinary job in pulling it all together. You know, they're very upfront about it. They say, you know, here's our referendum portal. Go and have a look at all our stuff. Um, the ABC, I mean, their current affairs stuff is aggregated, but there's great documentary drama and other material that they've been broadcasting for years. You know, to find, for instance, the Dark Emu story that Blackfellow Films did earlier this year, when I last looked for it on the ABC, I think I had to go through 19 screens to get to it. Now, that should be, that's something which actually addresses a lot of these issues. It's not just about the book. It's about a whole sort of survival story. Um, and it's, you know, 19 screens to get it. Well, you know, who's going to do that? I mean, you know, if I'm I'm a dedicated person hunting for it, that's what it takes me. Um, that's not going to be there. So I think that that um, it's a media problem, you know, in a sense, that the media moved it into a partisan Canberra story, either yes, yes and no, us and them, rather than saying there is a nation-building story here and that's going to come out of an interrogation of the history and let's go and find that talent. I mean, it, I mean, it is actually like quite challenging for some of the the, the reasons you've you've said, right? But it, like, I think we also have to kind of be honest about the fact that most Australians are actually quite fearful of this conversation, right? Because it it goes to a number of things that you've already raised. Some of them being really discomforting, disturbing, horrible things that uh, have been done in our name by our state, uh, our complicity. Uh, with those things as the beneficiary of the sort of economic production that has, oc- has occurred as a result of, uh, you know, economic uh, development. Um, and I guess a lack, a lack of expertise or willingness to put themselves out there on, on, the, on the part of journalists. It's a lot easier to basically do he said, she said reporting than to have to actually kind of meaningfully weigh into a debate and pass out 
what is, you know, misinformation, what is half-truth, you know, what is based on complex public policy, you know, because it's not just a question of the historical record, which in some ways has been better ventilated in this country than the, the realities of the kind of complex policy problems facing Indigenous communities and the fact that the sort of solutions for those aren't really sort of straightforward. I mean, just the this, this sort of academic basis for why a voice mechanism is, is a useful thing hasn't really been um, like discussed in, in this debate, right? And it's, it's, it's multifactorial. It's because there's lots of research to kind of show that consultation for Indigenous communities in this country and overseas doesn't work uh, or doesn't work in the way that governments want it to work because of, uh, you know, the historical problems with uh, trust. And frankly, like, you know, the the fact that Indigenous people are often not treated as full citizens or full capable citizens and the realities that that has on the implementation of public policy, let alone its design. But then there's also just the fact that, like, the voice is also an accountability mechanism, which is something that is not being discussed, which I think is really disappointing given that is the number one coherent and, I think, respectable argument being put forward by the no case that I think is actually worth debating as opposed to a lot of the sort of misinformation, which is the polite way of saying it, um, information that is that is sort of being spewed out by bots and, and, and a campaign. Um, mm. And uh, pe- people are frankly just uh, scared of going anywhere near a conversation about race. We don't really have the vocabulary for it. The stuff with Marcia Langton last week is really indicative of that. People were treading around that debate very carefully, but Marcia Langton effectively has put her finger on the essential problem in this debate, not only in the debate, but why we need a voice, because systemic racism has meant that a certain group of individuals and certain communities in our country are systematically worse off on virtually every single measure by which we make public policy, whether or not people want to believe it or not. But now we've got ourselves into this situation, it seems, and Marcia Langton experienced this, we all witnessed it, that it is uh, riskier to call out racism than is to, say, to indulge in racism that uh, there is clearly racism within this debate. There has been race in it all the way through. It has defined policy for a long time. And uh, and yet her uh, mentioning of it became a major political issue and the coverage largely f- sort of centred around the wisdom of her doing so, uh, the truth of her doing so, the accuracy of those comments, uh, whether they were incendiary or not, these kinds of things. Uh, it was like the crime of talking about it was greater than the uh, the issue itself. It was yeah. pretty depressing, I thought. It was very depressing, but, but it has been around, you know, like it's been around. I mean, Marcia did a very, there's a very fine chapter that she's written in, in the new handbook that accompanies her Welcome to Country book, which is, just trying to define what racism is and how it works, and it's 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 a you know it's a serious piece of, of writing and thinking, um, because I think that what what we see in Australia is that the way in which Australian people relate and treat to treat First Nations people is it's not just racism. It's actually it's it is its own particular form of. Um, 
of, you know, it, there is a particular viciousness and tone and sort of a sort um, of a negative exceptionalism. Oh, it's just, it's just, it's it, you know, I mean, I, I have, you know, I mean, I see it, I see it so often. I mean, partly when I'm with my friends who are indigenous, partly in other circumstances, there is something that is that is fundamentally different about the way. Um, mainstream Australia regards, not all, but you know, much of mainstream Australia instinctively goes to regard um, Indigenous people, and I was really surprised by that when, when the when this start when this discussion started last year. Um, t- two things. I mean, one was that you know, the Prime Minister had in every speech he'd given before the election said, I will ratify a voice to parliament. You know, I'll have a referendum about a voice to parliament. It was there in his major campaign speech. It was there all the way through. It was barely reported. And I thought at the time, is it barely being reported because his his minders are hosing it down and saying, oh, don't worry about that, you know, we'll just push that to one side? Or is it barely being reported because people didn't take it seriously? Oh, you know, it was, it was unclear. And so it came as an astonishing surprise to most people when that was his first major statement, you know, when he stood up to to claim victory on, on the night of the election. Um, and I think David Crow had a good line. You know, we've been saying he'd been running a small target campaign. He was running the biggest target campaign in the history, you know, in the history of the nation by by going to this constitutional Save, save for the fact that, as we uh, have agreed before, there was fairly widespread support soft though it may have been. So it wasn't perhaps part of the answer, and you and I both come from a journalism background, um, it wasn't as controversial in the context of what we understood to be political division. For example, the Liberal Party. Yeah, yeah, the coalition Mm -hmm. had not declared a position in principle against it um, Mm -hmm. and uh, and run the kind of uh, bellicose divisive campaign that it has run mm. since uh, and mm. neither had we seen the you know the, the shocking really sort of drop off in in public commitment to it so it didn't have the the sort of dna of a of controversy during the election campaign but that's true but but it wasn't interrogated either you know, it wasn't something that was in, and so that was, I think, you know, it was just sort of like it was, and I think that that, and I'd like to come back to that notion of what the consensus was, you know, in in up until the beginning of the year. So that was one thing. The other was that once it, once you'd made his statement at Gama and you know said that this was going to happen and so on, I started having conversations just with ordinary friends and colleagues and people around, and I realised that for people, you know, like. I'm in my mid-60s, but so people older than me, but, you know, people younger than me as well, it didn't take much. And all of a sudden there would be a, a remember. I remember talking to my GP, he's a brilliant young man, he said, oh, I remember when the kids at my railway station in Brisbane, you know, used to nick my school bag. You know, the Aboriginal kids did that. Um, talking to senior public servants in Sydney, former senior public servants, saying, oh, and I remember I was sitting on the train and those Aboriginal kids used to do X. You know, like mm. there's there was a, there's a sort of almost visceral sort of... Um, way of relating to Aboriginal people because that's, you know, that that has so been built into the DNA of the country. And it seemed to me that Maria's point about, you know, these are difficult conversations and hard to have, um, that in a way part of the reason that I'm saying, well, you know, I want the historians to be out there because they actually come to it with a sort of professional neutrality yes. in a sense, you know, that they're doing it seriously. And because it's become partisan, it's become very difficult for politicians to to, to actually be actively involved in, in in going stepping beyond that that political discussion. I thought, for instance, the other morning Peter Garrett did an interview on on Radio National Breakfast, which was fantastic. You know, he's somebody who through his work before politics actually you know, 
thought deeply, learn about this. And he just changed the frame of the discussion. It wasn't the frame that had been presented. So that we don't have many of those sort of elder characters, in a sense, who can actually step beyond the, the day-to-day to actually, to Maria's point, actually take people with them on a conversation which, sure, it's going to be confronting and, sure, it's going to be challenging, but it's going to be uplifting as well. You know, look, there are some really good examples. There are some really good stories of things that have worked, you know, and, and where people have tried to do the right thing. So it's not, um, you know, it, it, but it's like that leadership. It's like that leadership which is neither political nor um you know, it, it, because the politics got dealt into it, it couldn't come out of the political place and there's not a lot of those sort of older statesman-type characters who could actually be leading the discussion in a really informed fashion. And I think that's part of part of what's made it difficult for people to get beyond the old preconceptions. Maria, I wonder if, um, you know, going to Julianne's point, the what your thoughts are about the way the media have handled this because... The existence of strong partisan media is, uh, a, a, you know, a very real and relatively recent factor in Australian media, certainly broadcast media. The 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 influence of uh, of of Sky uh, Sky After Dark in particular, these kinds of things, um, the the more more uh, aggressive position of of a lot of these uh, new media platforms, and of course the advent of social media. But media themselves, I think, have been really struggling with this for all the reasons that Julianne was just talking about, the fact that it, the issue became uh, sort of it dropped into the taxonomy of Australian politics of, of you know, the, the binary of left and right and so forth. How do you think that's um, affected this debate and, and, and really, I suppose, constrained the sort of more expansive discussion that Julianne's talking about, the use of academic historians, for example, in elaborating and deepening a number of these themes and really extending the Australian discussion as we approach this vote? Well, I don't think when Albanese announced that he would be taking this to an election or to a referendum on on his election victory night that he kind of anticipated that it would be a partisan um, moment, you know, I think that wouldn't have been part of his figuring at the time. And I mean, there is a real partisan kind of context to the coalition's decision to oppose this measure. It happened um, very shortly after the Aston by-election, um, which, you know, there is some media circulation to suggest that that was part of part of that. And I think it is just to be blunt, like a lot of or nearly every single policy debate in this country that becomes difficult and is complex, climate is another really good example of this, that it's actually just simply easier to report the sort of political theatrics of it or the sort of horse race dimension of it than the actual substance of it. You know, climate politics is difficult because it's really quite complex, multifactorial, detail-based, science-based, probabilistic, difficult to effectively explain uh, with the sort of existential dimension. Indigenous politics is emotionally uh, existential and um, personally kind of confronting because it's actually, if you start to think about Indigenous affairs in in any kind of meaningful way for more than two seconds, um, you know, you're very quickly confronted with your own place in this country. 
and your own way of relating to it. That doesn't mean that you're necessarily responsible for all the things that are sort of happening, but as part of a body politic, it's actually impossible to sort of separate yourself uh, from it in a way that you can from climate change because big corporations are destroying our environment. And I think that is one of the reasons why people have essentially just shied away from from doing the real work of, of the of actually thinking about what it actually kind of means that this moment why indigenous people have asked for recognition in this way why they are not satisfied with simply a basic acknowledgement in the constitution and why they are asking for some piece of of, of practical work uh, uh, some kind of effectively like a I don't want to call it a gift because I don't think it is a gift from the state, but essentially a binding promise from the state to to grant them an extra set of voice um, that other citizens don't necessarily kind of get. And except that they do in so many multiple ways, but yeah. Well, exactly, exactly. And I think this. I mean, like, I don't mean to. I don't want to sort of buy into this no argument that it's a special kind of thing. Like, I mean, the reality is, is that they, that you know, indigenous people need this, uh, this mechanism because they don't actually have the same capacity for voice that other citizens do. Um, the political system isn't as good at, as being responsive to them to lots of other cohorts of of um, citizens and and to be blunt they also need accountability mechanisms because our current ones have basically systematically failed them and that's an important part of the voice debate that we actually haven't kind of talked about which is it's not just that this is an advisory committee that can make representations to government it's that it's a standing body that can actually kind of be accountable in a way that that nothing else has been and and that's that's actually the feedback loop that might change things. Yeah, it's a really interesting point, isn't it, Julianne, that it can critique on an ongoing basis the performance of government in, in these critical areas. And can I just get you also, uh, when you think about response to that, to also um, think about the way this has been framed uh, as uh, a voice enshrined in the Constitution. I, I would like to see it referred to more as a voice protected in the Constitution because I think protected in the Constitution, it, is, it contains its own argument. It, it basically reflects the history of organisations that have been brought into being in the past to uh, supposedly represent uh, Indigenous interests and which have come and gone and which have performed in various ways and, and underperformed in others and become the subject of, of, of political argument. And really what we're talking about here is, as Maria says, a body that can represent Indigenous interests, can advocate on behalf of those interests, can critique the performance of government, and that is protected in the Constitution on an ongoing basis so as to lift it above the partisan fray. Yeah. I think that, look, there's so much there. I don't know where to start. Um, A couple of things. Um, I I think that when Maria says... Um, said earlier about this being not being special. I mean, I think that what we actually have to acknowledge, and I don't think this is a hard thing really for people to acknowledge. I think people can get there, and that is that there is something special that first the first peoples they have a special relationship with this place. Absolutely, it is the founding difference of this society, this country, this continent, than anywhere else. That there is a continuous 
continuous um, civilization that's operated on this continent for an extraordinary amount of time, a mind-bogglingly large, long amount of time. Now, I think everyone can sort of now accept that. They can sort of say, although I notice in some of the no stuff that I see that they, they're not saying, no, it's 4,000 years, you know, the back to creationist stuff before you know it. But, <laughs> but, 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 but I think that there's a general sort of consensus that people can accept that, that to have survived and lived and operated on this continent for such a long period of time required a very particular way of learning to adapt, living, storytelling, making sense of the place and so on. I think that people can accept that. Um, and I think that's the least threatening bit in a sort of way because, you know, of course, our attempts, you know, as of Europe, European settlement has been essentially, as they used to say, to breathe them out, make them go. They're dying, dying out, you know, all that sort of genocidal type language mm. that was used for a long time. Um, we can accept that that's happened. They are here. They are thriving. They are managing to, you know, to, you know, to continue to hold really deep, a deep understanding and, and stuff with this place. So, to me, the, the special thing is actually less problematic. I think people can actually get that, and and in a way. The, the whether it's enshrined or enacted or represented in the constitution. I mean, I'm not too fussed about the words because I think that the whole thing's could do with a bit of a scrub up. Um, but the um, but the, uh, the, the the it's the failure to recognise that in the first place at the point of federation yes. that needs to be addressed, and that's that's the the crucial thing. I mean, I've always thought that the now, there are people who are uncomfortable about the lack of detail and not knowing and so on. If if one has trust in the parliamentary political process, surely that's the place where that gets resolved. You know, you have committees of inquiry, you have parliamentary inquiries, they report, they come up with legislation, that gets tested. You know, that's a process that we're familiar with in almost everything else. So it seems to me that that two-step process is, is actually a very, a very modest and appropriate way to go. The, 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 the accountability thing I think is really important. Um, and one of the things that bothers me a little bit about the way that the government has been responding in the sort of public discussion is to keep talking down what this voice might do. Yeah. You know, oh, it won't be paid. Oh, there won't be discussion about reparations. Oh, this won't happen. That won't happen. You know, actually, you create this body. And you see what happens with it and it gets revised and it can be changed and it can, can be modified and, and so on. But it goes back to the foundational flaw, which was not addressed, you know, right in the original constitution. That's the bit that needs to be, um, that this needs to do. And, and the rest of it follows through, through the normal political process. It's why I find the, the behaviour of um, the opposition in trying to foster distrust so extraordinary. The politicians saying, well, we won't be able to do anything. I mean, this is absolutely becomes a parliamentary, you know, parliamentary exercise in creating legislation that makes this work. It's absolutely back on them. So why they are so actively well, sort Australian of poisoning their own world. are not very comfortable with parliamentary processes. I mean, you know, that's why people have resisted the power of the Senate for such a long time. I guess... Well, like, what, well, what like you the, know, if you're a professional politician and you're operating in Parliament, you should actually, you know... Of course, of course. You know, it's like you say... Many, you yeah. many have made their careers saying you shouldn't trust politicians except me, you know. So in some ways it's actually not at all surprising that, that this, this has kind of come about and... And you, I think you. I think it's gone to another level, Maria. I think it's gone to another level. I mean, this, the 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 quibbling around the AEC, you know. I mean, the the stuff that they're doing now is, 
I think it's of a different order than yeah, I what I've seen over a longer yeah, period. Yeah, no, I, I don't I don't disagree with that. But I guess what I'm saying is it's, it's actually not come out of nowhere. It's part of a, a natural trajectory. And, and I think, you know, part of it is to do with the way that the Yes campaign has structured the campaign. Like they've, they've chosen to stay really positive and that means staying really abstract. And that's easier for white people to deal with because they don't have to reckon with the actual real world distress, the real world problems, um, the actual human faces or bodies that the voice would be seeking to kind of address and to solve. And it is possible that not articulating a really clear problem, a practical problem, a bleeding wound that people can see is one of the reasons why we are where we are now. But they can see it. I mean, honestly, I mean. I think know, lots we, of people don't want to see it. They yet. don't want to see it, but it's not as though it's not available to be seen. Um, I mean, part of the part of the reason I think that the Yes campaign was also doing a positive thing was that, you know, the deficit model of, of, of reporting Indigenous affairs has been so pre- prevalent for so long that we're accustomed to those, you know, those ghastly, ghastly stories. I mean, I've done them myself. Um you know, that that suggests a lack of agency, it sends the lack of capacity, it suggests a dependency, it suggests a victimhood, you know, all those, you know, things which have been very much the dominant narrative in reporting Aboriginal affairs for, for so long. I mean, by being going going high while others go low, I mean, what they're trying to do is to say, look, we can actually see beyond the here and now to, to a future. Um, and you know that there are examples. You know there are people who have succeeded. There are things that have happened. There are changes that have occurred, and there are great case studies. I, of how, I, I agree yeah. with everything you said. I, I just think for like if you think about it from a structural political campaign, if you've got one side that is uh, positive and abstract, and another side that is negative and concrete, like it's just human psychology. Um, oh look, uh, yeah, no question about the campaign. And look, I think if we've got time, Mark, it'd be quite good to talk a little bit about the campaign. Yeah, because yeah, I think that's far the- away. We, we haven't got too long, but um, uh, the floor is yours. I mean, do I just think that that um, that the campaign, um, that what we saw with the No campaign, and I mean, it's I would recommend a fabulous book by Peter Pomerantsev called "This Is Not Propaganda." As a sort of an example of how this, what has occurred in this campaign, is actually the typecast of what's occurred in in other countries, and in his book he documents dozens and dozens of countries where where campaigning of this style has occurred. The principal first thing is to change the consensus. The consensus is, as Mark you said before, you know. Going into the election or going into the the referendum discussion, the consensus was 60, 65, 70%, you know, of people were supporting this notion of constitutional recognition in a meaningful way. Um, That was where it started. So you had the, the campaign, the key principle of the opposition campaign was to turn that so that the consensus went from being predominantly in favour to one now that we get, we're told every day with, you know, little polls is predominantly negative. That's the key task. And to do that, it's largely um, there's, there was a political play by Dutton in asking his initial questions. There was the government's failure to meaningfully address that, which I thought was a, f- a bad mistake at the beginning of the year. Um, there was an excessive deference in a way to we'll let Aboriginal people lead this. We won't take a sort of active role in it. We don't want to be stepping on people's toes. And, and then... At the same time, online testing of every ghastly word, every ghastly story, every possible way of seeing it, you know, amusingly, wittily, 
horribly. Um, and where have they landed? They've landed with a word that is divisive. Divisive is now the key word in the no campaign. And what does that, you know, what does that bring back? That brings back assimilation. That brings back, you know, all sorts of old tropes in the Australian mentality that can, that hang off that word. It's not accidental. It was rigorous. It was predominantly online, but then amplified by the media picking up the political stuff. And yes, for all its, the, you know, the determination and honourability and decency and, and conscientious sort of top-downness that they adopted in developing the campaign, they catered the online space. They were just not present. Yeah, I, I, that, I agree with that. That was a terrible mistake, I think, yeah, a terrible yeah, mistake. Yeah, I, I agree with uh, virtually all of that. I think uh, it's easy to forget the long period during which there was essentially a vacuum around this campaign and the negative side of it was being defined while the positive side was was supposedly coming at some point. We were constantly reassured that, oh, you wait till the campaign gets up and running, you wait, you know, it's going to be really decisive. Well, uh, we're only, you know, three and a half weeks away from it uh, with, with whatever that number is, three and a half weeks or three weeks into it, uh, the official campaign. And... Um, we haven't seen that turnaround. In fact, we've seen a uh, continued drift in the other direction, and I think that's uh, been of, uh, of of concern. And the, the the way the I mean, I tried to address this on Insiders back in June. I think uh, this yeah. this this Orwellian trick really they've used of um, of of essentially coming out against a proposition which was intended to be nationally unifying. And describing it as divisive, this divisive voice, and it's been picked up. Media have, for the most part, not interrogated this not utter, utter kind of um, uh, sort of logical reversal uh, of of meaning. Where, um, I mean, if we t- take, for example, the '67 referendum, everyone talks about it as being this great moment of this great unifying moment, and indeed it was. I mean, over ninety percent of Australians voted uh, for that change to the constitution. People talk about it now and they've got no idea really what the details of it were. They, When you tell them, that in fact, it it actually gave the Commonwealth power to uh, to legislate on, on in relation to Aboriginal people uh, and to make special programs for them rather than the other way around, you know, because a lot of people on the no side say it took race out of the uh, Constitution. It didn't. Bill Wentworth in his original public members bill wanted yeah. to race to be taken out of the Constitution, couldn't get the support. That's right, that's right. Mm. Um, but when we think back to why was that a unifying moment, it was a unifying moment because there was political bipartisanship to it. That political bipartisanship has been denied this. As you uh, said before, Julianne, um, uh, David Littleproud came out against it in November of last year, well before the wording of the uh, or anything like that was finalised. Uh, he, he committed, in effect, uh, the tail wagging the dog committed the coalition to its negative position because I think Dutton at that point had less m- room to move. He probably was going in that direction anyway, but uh, the, uh, the the National Party defi- declared its position as a matter of uh, principle, if you can call it that, and that has defined this debate ever since. Um, and the people who have done the division, the people who have decided, no, we're not going to agree to this, have to, have got away with this idea of calling it divisive, and it's a, 
it, it's it's a horrible irony. It should be it should be nation building. I mean, it's interesting when you look at that um, AEC brochure, and quite honestly, if anyone had tried to make a less attractive <laughs> brochure than than that, they would they would win a prize. But I can't imagine that anyone could make it less attractive. I mean, I don't understand. The colour choice. I don't understand the left-right page continuum. I don't understand, um, you know, a whole lot of things about that. If it's meant to be a document that's, you know, that's genuinely information revealing for, for the public, but if you get to the end of it, there are three websites. You know, the Yes campaign doesn't then say go to Yes Twenty Three or go to Together Yes or go to the Labor Party campaign. What? But at the end of the No case. There are three websites that are referred to. And I thought, oh, this is pretty amazing. What One's called Risky Voice. That's the Liberal Party campaign page. The next one is, and I, don't, I haven't got it in front of me, the next one is an equally sort of, you know, loaded word, which is the National Party page. So it's not saying go to the Liberal, it's going to Risky Voice. Mm. I think the next one is Divide Australia yeah. and the other one, I forget, the third one's, you know, Fair Australia. So the, the, the baked into it is a sort of propaganda framing, mm. you know, in that, you know, like in what should be the most neutral of documents. Yeah. Yeah. Look, we're going to have to uh, wrap up now. We've um, uh, all been, I, th I think, in some level of agreement about a number of these things. There is uh, some time to go. Things are not uh, without hope for those people who are looking to see progress in this uh, long-running uh, problem that Australia has had with reconciling its past and, and therefore having a, an active role in shaping its future. Um I know there are people who are going to probably listen to this who take a different view, and uh, that's 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 the nature of this democracy. It's the nature of the debate, but um, it is a, uh, I think, a very critical moment, and we're not far off from making a decision that I think has implications that will be very far-reaching. So, uh, Julianne Schultz, thanks so much for your time and for your writings and contribution to this public debate, and uh, long may it continue. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. I do think it's still a teachable moment for the next few weeks. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, let's, uh, <laughs> let's, let's see how we go. Um, thank you, as always, to you, Maria. My pleasure, and thanks, everyone. And that's Democracy Sausage for this week. Thanks for being with us. Uh, it's been a, a longer-than-usual discussion, but I think very much worth it given the importance of the, of the subject matter, and we'll look forward to another uh, intersection with you next week. Until then, bye for now.